Hello, it's a joy to be with you today. My name is Grant Miles Era, and I'm lead pastor at New Song Church. And this is actually the next to last message in our series that we're calling All Right Here. And next week, actually, both myself and Josh uh, Koya and Melody Anderson are going to join together to wrap the series up and, and to give us all an opportunity to really consider uh, where in the past uh, weeks we have experienced disorientation and where we might have encountered God in, in that process. Uh, yeah, during the last nine weeks, we've journeyed through uh, a, a, an op- opportunity to look at the people in Scripture uh, who find themselves uh, in difficult circumstances, in their own disorientation. And, and the hope was that we would see our lives reflected in their lives. Uh, we've looked at uh, the psalm writers and the first disciples and Esther and Jonah and Moses and Elijah um, Many men and women who encountered in their lives times when it's like the wheels fell off and they entered into circumstances which were new and for which they were not equipped. Yet because of that disorientation, they actually met with God and were changed. And I hope that the common themes throughout these messages have become clear for us that for all human beings, there is always this movement happening between a longed for settled orientation Uh, and experiences of disorientation that are inescapable for human beings in this world. And however, in the midst of this dynamic of moving from something that seems settled and normal and uh, with an ability to handle it because we understand it and we have the the ability to, to cope in these situations and then finding ourselves in this place of disorientation, we've been told that there is a God who in the midst of this is present and active and available to us and in whom we can find ourselves reoriented and changed and healed and strengthened by the very challenges that seem to announce to us a loss of hope or peace or joy or life. And God interrupts. He is one who interrupts the normal cycle of things. This is the truth of this series, that we, we find ourselves interrupted by God, and he breaks us out of these patterns into something new. And this week we're looking at the greatest reorientation story of all time. And it is the great story of God's love for and redemption of all creation. And all people are invited to find themselves caught up into this story and to let the great author begin to edit and reshape the chapters of our lives. And the great story begins with creation, that God made all things and he declared that they were good And there was a settled goodness and a predictability and a deep connection throughout all of creation. God to human, human to human, and human to the rest of creation. And we find within ourselves this longing for that experience that seems always to be elusive, but it seems to be stamped into our DNA and something to do with the fact that we're made in God's image. But this creation was marred, was broken, was twisted by sin. And people fell out of relationship with God and with one another. And there are many interpretations within Christianity as to how this actually all happened, but we see the evidence of this brokenness both within ourselves and all around us in the world. But that's not the end of the story because in the Christian tradition, there is the promise of a good end, which is actually truly a great new beginning rather than a return to what once was, a great new beginning. And this great reorientation is described throughout Scripture in many ways and in many places. And one example is in Revelation, which is something we talk about end times, talk about this kind of subject. Revelation obviously is going to appear. And actually John, one of Jesus' followers, as a a disciple, in his old age, receives a vision and shares it with the church of his time in their time of serious upheaval and trial. 
And John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And I don't think you have to be a Christian to find these words hopeful, to find hope in these words. In fact, I've read these words many times at funerals and memorial services, and I, could always, I can always feel the sense of connection and a longing and a hope in the room as I did so. And in a world filled with uncertainty and the inevitability of our own deaths, always making its presence known at the edges of our lives, we instinctively long for a clear word about a good future. We find ourselves today in the midst of a time of deep unrest. And in my conversations with friends and family, many have expressed that they're feeling a great heaviness that feels almost beyond their ability to cope. And if you're paying attention, if we're paying attention, we'll have noticed that the problems in our world right now have no simple solutions. As soon as we think we've found the true and correct answer, other voices call to us to rethink, to revise, or even abandon the solid ground that we think we may have discovered who is speaking truth in this world? Who speaks with clarity for God? We see all the broken people, broken systems, the conflict and the hatred. And in the midst of all of this, the world we see around us, it's no wonder that many times we just feel the sense we just want God to wrap it all up. Listen to this. I am forced to firmly believe that Christ must soon return because sin is so great that heaven can no longer tolerate it. They incite and resist judgment day so much that it must come upon them before too much time. Have you expressed or heard expressed this sentiment? Well, I'll tell you, it seems like this has always been the case because those words were actually written by Martin Luther, the German Protestant reformer in 1538. At times like these, the prospect of a great and final reorientation is especially attractive. And Christianity clearly holds out that hope to us. But what about now? What about today? What about tomorrow, next week, next year? Despite sincere agreement about the fact that Christ will one day return and that all will be made well, there are differences in what we believe our responsibility should be in the meantime. And I would like to suggest that there are two main groups that we might currently find ourselves in and neither of them are particularly helpful. And they each have serious implications for who we will be and how we will live as neighbors in our communities and we'll determine actually if we're a help or a hindrance to Jesus' work on earth. And as a fan of music of all kinds, I have found myself, I often quickly think of a song uh, for any kind of situation or concept. And uh, along the lines of that, I'm going to use two song titles to label these attitudes. And the first is R.E.M.'s song. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. And the second is Frank Sinatra's My Way. Couldn't really find two different songs than those. Firstly, R.E.M., they wrote a song called It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I Feel Fine. 
How, how does that apply to perhaps how Jesus' people might live or perceive these times? You know, in 1830, an Englishman by the name of Thomas Nelson Darby advocated what he called a secret rapture of the faithful. And this idea arrived in the United States and became part of what is known as dispensationalism, uh, as taught by pastors and teachers such as C.I. Schofield and Lewis Sperry Schaefer. He was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. And you've probably heard of it, if you've heard of it at all, and most people actually have, because of the popularized versions of it in the Left Behind series of books and movies. So here's the scenario. At some point in time, after certain signs have taken place, all the true Christians will be taken up into the clouds to meet Jesus in the air at one time, and all the non-Christians will be left behind to face the wrath of God. And it comes from a, a verse in 1 Thessalonians, another, a few other places in Scripture. And actually, um, my first pastor played a joke on me one time try, uh, along these lines. Actually, I was uh, working not far from the church, and I wasn't working in the church. I was actually working as a kind of personal assistant at this car mechanic place. Um, but I used to go, I was a needy uh, new Christian, so I'd go pretty much every single lunchtime to meet with my pastor, and we would, we would sit and talk. And by the time I'd leave, leave after an hour, he was very tolerant, this, this gentleman, uh, I would feel better. Because, you know, I was, I was going through some stuff and just being a new Christian again, returning to faith again was hard. Um, well, one day he thought he played a trick on me, so his wife came to pick him up to go to a doctor's appointment. So he, his car was there. He wasn't going to be that long. So he left the door unlocked, his office unlocked, and he changed his clothes to go to this visit. So he left his suit on his chair in his office with the computer on, with his glasses sitting on top of his suit, his clothes expecting, as always, that Grant would come, would wander in and be so shocked to discover that I had truly been left behind. Well, it turns out I didn't visit the church that day, much to his disappointment, but the secretary at the church did, and she was the one who discovered this and got the shock. Um, but you know, you might be forgiven for thinking that this particular understanding of end times was always the predominant Christian one, but you'd actually be wrong. And even now, the Christian church as a whole is not in agreement about this understanding uh, about how God will renew creation, what's going to happen in those days. You know, there are almost as many theories about end times as there are Christian de denominations. I tried to find a chart with them all to explain them all, but they wouldn't all fit on a chart. I couldn't find one. There's just, they're all separate. There's so many. But I mentioned this one because it's so popular, and I think many of us have this idea. And my point is not to say that it's wrong, but instead to point out that it can have very unfortunate consequences for our lives. Many have pointed to the fact that this kind of sense of, 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 of a rapture, of a leaving, can easily lead Jesus' people to become obsessed with the exit plan at the expense of the ministry plan. Our, our preoccupation with getting out of here can steal from us our ability to be fully present here now. Our preoccupation with getting out of here then can steal from us our ability to be fully present here now. Let's think about this impulse. Just imagine that you were on a boat filled with your neighbors, old and young, adults and children, and you knew that it was headed for disaster. But you also knew that at some point you yourself would be saved just in time to be spared from that dreadful end. And you had the knowledge and skills to prepare others for this event, but instead of sitting with the other passengers in solidarity and generosity and openness and honesty, you spent all your time at the front of the boat with a telescope trying to spot your rescuers. Just keep away from these messy people. They're noisy, they're smelly. 
my rescue's coming. I'm looking for it. I spent all my time. You know, this belief can lead to a sense that the church is so heavenly minded that it's of no earthly good. And actually, it's a perspective that in its extreme can cease to be Christian. Many of the New Testament scriptures are written to address what is a heresy known as Gnosticism. And it's an ancient belief that is still with us today. It tells us that only what is spiritual is good and what is material or earthly is bad. And that the goal of true religion is to rid ourselves of the physical in order that we might enter fully into the spiritual and then we will truly be saved. It kind of gives rise to that sense of heaven that is a popular error that heaven is about clouds and harps and hymns, some disembodied, strange, ethereal, ghost-like existence. And it can make itself known through Christian voices whose sole concern and the majority of our energy is spent making sure that friends and family don't get left behind. That's the, that's the first one. It's the end of the world as I know it. And I feel fine. I know I'm going to be gone. The second, I think, equally unhelpful and opposite perspective is by saying Frank Sinatra's song, My Way. I did it my way. Really, it's like there's no one else but me to make the world a better place. And if the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine attitudes are like Gnosticism, which is only the spiritual matters, then I did it my way attitudes are like humanism, only the material matters, no supernatural, no miracles, nothing greater than ourselves. We must do this work or it will not be done. And there's actually a group called the Humanist Society and I looked on their website the other day Actually, their banner says, good without a God. That's their slogan. And they define uh, humanism as being this, a belief that when people are free to think for, the, for themselves, using reason and knowledge as their tools, they are best able to solve this world's problems. And we can point the finger at, at such ideas and such groups, but the thing is, Christians are all too prone to this type of practical atheism, saying with our mouths, Jesus is Lord, yet often looking to other things to achieve the goals they believe to be right. Saying Jesus is Lord, but yet an inordinate attention to systems and, and ways of trying to achieve things that are right through sheer determined human effort. You know, the world of politics is and always has been a prime candidate for this kind of misplaced hope and allegiance. And we can find ourselves looking to, ideolo to ideologies and organizations to fix the wrongs of society. And we can give away our identity and give the work to others. But in, to look past the human limitations of these earthly powers and their complicity in great evil is to delude ourselves. And I, I think I see a struggle today between these two extremes in Jesus' followers, and I've experienced it myself, just consider these two statements. The first, racism, evil, injustice, is just simply a heart problem. We can't change it. We should simply pray for God to change people's hearts. Secondly, no more thoughts and prayers. We must take action now to change society and the structures and institutions that perpetrate, perpetuate injustice. If you claim to be a Christ follower, perhaps you've found yourself expressing either of those positions, or perhaps both at times. Have you found yourself wondering where prayer might end and action might begin, or vice versa? Are they both wrong, or is there truth somewhere within each of these statements? Well, today, 
this is what we're looking at. We're looking at this great reorientation. And that is the place to look as we seek to be faithful and balanced as the people of God on earth. In these times, we need to see this great orientation and, and in its light understand who we are to be today. Not looking to other voices, but to look to this great voice that promises this time of reorientation and let that color and effect and give shape to who we are today. First, we need a clearer understanding. A clearer understanding. We've talked often about this concept of now and not yet. This is very important to understand. You know, we talked about creation, and then we talked about the fall into sin and the brokenness that we experience. But then, of course, Christ came. Christ interrupted this process and he brought the kingdom of God. That's what he said. I bring the kingdom. Today the kingdom is here. And he was crucified. Uh, but he rose again. But then he left. And the Holy Spirit was sent into the church. So there's this concept of the now and not yet. What it tells us is that the, the kingdom work has been done. Jesus said it is finished on the cross. But yet we're in this period of, of, we, of waiting. We don't fully see that realized now. It is not fully present uh, among us, but, but it's here. The kingdom is here, and it should be changing things. And um, we've also looked at this other concept, that what is the church meant to be in the meantime? Um, and, and here's what we've learned, that a sign and a foretaste and an instrument of the kingdom of God on earth. A sign, we've talked about this a couple of times, a sign being uh, uh, it, it evidence, it, it points to like a signpost of something unique, something uh, other, something incredible. A foretaste, and I talked about that's like um, um, if, if I smell some good food cooking, you know, I, I've got this uh, sense that something good is happening in the other room. It's this kind of savor, this smell, this fragrance. The church should be this kind of foretaste, like people are intrigued by this community that's living so differently and it's a taste of the kingdom to come on the earth now. And then an instrument. What is an instrument for? And I don't mean necessarily a musical instrument, but, but, but a tool. It's something that carries out a particular job. The church is to be an instrument of the kingdom of God on earth now. And this is what Jesus has called us to do. He gives us his Holy Spirit that we would be empowered and uh, compelled, as Josh mentioned last week, compelled to live this way, to enact this kingdom now. Uh, Clarence Jordan, he was one of the founders of what is known as the Koinonia Farm. Koinonia simply means fellowship in America's Georgia. And this group launched the organization Habitat for Humanity. And they build houses for people who, could, who cannot afford a house. They get together in a community, it's a communal effort, and they build a house for a family. And, and Clarence wants to describe the mission of interracial cooperation on his place in sub southwest Georgia as this, a demonstration plot for the kingdom. A demonstration plot for the kingdom that all would watch and they would see that something is happening. So we need a clear understanding of who we are to be. Who is the church? And what has happened because Christ has risen from the dead, but yet he has not returned? What is this intervening season to be about for us? The second thing is we need a better way, a better way. 
one of the goals for this coming year that we have set as New Song Church is this, is to grow. Um, grow was on the list of goals last year, but it's been tweaked a little bit. And here's what it says in the, in the, in the uh, goal. Develop mature and active mere Christians whose relationship with God informs and transforms every aspect of their lives. Now you may wonder what mere Christians, uh, what does that mean? Well, it kind of came from C.S. Lewis and actually from a long time before, a man called Richard Baxter who was a Puritan. In his writings he mentioned mere Christian. Uh, Before explaining what it means, let me explain what it is not. It doesn't mean that we will dumb down our convictions to only a few points. We can have many convictions and we've talked about in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty or freedom, and in all things, charity or love. It also doesn't mean that we expect everyone to agree about every single doctrine or theological detail that can be formulated. What it does mean is this, that we will, when teaching and preaching, be honest about the variety of perspectives that Christians have and do hold about various things. And we will also seek to avoid misrepresentations or characterizations that are disrespectful, disrespectful to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it means also that we will hold strongly to that which has always been the conviction of both the clear teaching of Scripture and the witness of the church throughout history. We will hold to those things. And it means, lastly, we will seek to crown Christ as King for all areas of our lives. No other consideration comes above that. One of my favorite quotes by Abraham Kuyper says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine, not one square inch. That Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. We need to echo that cry. Yours, Lord, yours. So when it comes to end times, what can we say and how might that be helpful or how we try and navigate this current time in which we find ourselves? Well, first, what can we be clear about? A good place for the mere Christian to start is with the creeds. Uh, And before uh, I attempted to go to Scotland uh, for my short trip, we we were in a series we called Table Talk and it was after church on Sundays, at least 60 people signed up to come to the church sanctuary to enjoy some soup and some bread and to discuss the boring old creeds of the Christian church. It was, it was fantastic, amazing to me. It's inspiring to me. It tells me that people are hungry for solid ground, for something that they can actually say, yeah, this I affirm and I believe and see how it actually changes our lives. Uh, unfortunately, we were rudely interrupted by the coronavirus, but... We're going to do more of that in the future. And so these creeds, it was the Apostles' Creed that we studied then, they're so encouraging. You know, they were the early church and beyond. There's creeds still being created today. The church's attempt to draw from the teaching of the apostles the true things about God and how he has redeemed and is redeeming his creation. And many of these documents are actually written to address like unhelpful drifts from the truth that the church has encountered and will encounter. They're kind of recalibration documents to say, this we believe. And they're so helpful. So what do they tell us about the future? Well, three of the creeds, the earliest creeds, the Apostles' Creed talks about it. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. The Nicene Creed says, I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. 
then the Athanasian Creed, Christ rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, is seated on the right hand of the Father, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people shall rise with their bodies and give an account of their own deeds. And so in order to navigate these times, you must take seriously the overall message. If you want to understand reorientation in these times, you must understand the overall message of the great hope we have in the great reorientation to come. And the first thing to notice from these creeds is that the, the hope that we have is not in an experience of heaven or heavenly escape. The Christian's hope has and always will be a hope in the resurrection of the body. Because Jesus came in the flesh. He redeems the flesh and declares it to be good. And that we will be raised to life, not some disconnected spiritual life, but a full-blooded bodily existence on an earth. And also, secondly, it appears that the actions that we do now are important to the outcome of our place in this recreated world. Then I see in Creed said, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Athanasian Creed, all people shall rise with their bodies and give an account of their own deeds. What else can we learn? Well, it seems clear, both in the creeds but in scripture also, that our resurrection into, is into a recreated world that has shape and form and ethics and purpose. It is, it is the kingdom of heaven. It has its own. God gives, God's character gives it its character. Therefore, we're not called to, by our own wisdom and strength, create a better form of human society. We as the church are called to live into and according to a design that already exists. It already exists. We're not at liberty to decide what the kingdom of God should look like now as it, as it works out amongst us and in us. It's already, it's already has form, shape and meaning and purpose and ethics. So what might that tell us about how we should live now? If we're not at liberty, we're not free to just make it up as we go along, but to take that model of the kingdom of heaven to come and live out that now in our lives and through our daily actions and words what does that mean? Well, there's many things. And actually, I'm going to create a little resource for us that maybe lists some of the other elements of the kingdom to come that we should pay attention to as we seek to live together now as this um, sign and uh, foretaste and instrument. But a couple, the first thing is, it's clear that the kingdom is multicultural. Multicultural. Revelation 7, 9, John writes, I looked again and I saw a huge crowd, too huge to count. Everyone was there, all nations and tribes, all races and languages. And they were standing dressed in white robes and waving palm branches, standing before the throne and the lamb and heartily singing salvation to our God on his throne, salvation to the lamb. All tribes and tongues and nations and languages singing Glory and salvation to our God, our God. And therefore, in the kingdom that is now, we need to be seeking to encourage, support, and nurture this diversity and unity that we see in the kingdom to come. Not expecting people to leave their cultural distinctives at the door, but to bring them in and make us richer. And that's hard. 
We said last week, uh, many have said Sunday morning in the churches in America is the most segregated time in the week. The kingdom is multicultural. And every culture has aspects that God will change and there are other things that God will affirm. And no culture is, is immune from that. But we're called to do that difficult work of finding that unity together in Christ and learning from each other. So we said a couple of weeks ago to listen, listen, listen. And if, we, if we're missing parts, then we're not hearing the full counsel of God to us in these times. We need to listen to our brothers, listen to our sisters from all cultures, all languages, all parts of the world. Or we will just have a narrow perspective on what God is doing. The second thing is justice. Justice seems to be a consistent theme in the kingdom of God. You can't escape it. You know, Micah 6 eight has become a very popular scripture these days with people who are not even Christians, I think. And it, all, it's, it says, what does God require of people but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God? You've heard it, I'm sure, seen it. Um, uh, in fact, um, it's as if it's the only bit in the Bible that talks about justice. In fact, just this week on Facebook, I was scrolling through uh, and there was an advertisement for this T-shirt. So you can buy the T-shirt now. And it almost feels to me like people are so relieved to find something in the Bible that resonates with this inner sense that justice is important. And we're like, we found it. We found the one verse in scripture that says these things. But here's the actual fact is that justice is at the heart of the biblical record because it's at the heart of the God who the scriptures reveal. And it's the heart of Jesus. And as a consequence, those who have understood this in the church through history have always had a place of active engagement with social issues. And if you don't believe me, take a look at church history for yourself. Where did hospitals come from? Where did schools come from? Who cared for the vulnerable in their communities before there was any welfare safety net? The abolition of slavery was led by Christian people such as William Wilberforce and John Newton who penned Amazing Grace, Harriet Tubman, Elizabeth Margaret Chandler. We need to know who these people are and what they did. They're part of our story. Thomas Merton in 1968, once described the civil, civil rights movement as the greatest example of Christian faith in action in the social history of the United States. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, speaking about the evils of the Nazi party, way early on, 1933, before, just, I'm sorry, immediately after Hitler became a German chancellor, and he wrote these words, we are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice, said Pastor Bonhoeffer. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. And it was the church in South Africa that provided a place of refuge during apartheid and a path to peace and reconciliation because of its belief in the kingdom of God and that this, this separation was, was, was anathema to the principles of the kingdom to come. And therefore, in their work as the church, they were to work for reconciliation and for peace. Jesus himself, he took out the money changers in the temples. temple. First thing he did pretty much coming into Jerusalem is he went to the temple and he made a whip out of a length of rope and he turned their tables over. And not just because of some pious reaction to the reputation of that building being used for commerce, but actually because these merchants were price gouging people. 
who were coming honestly to worship and they had to purchase animals for the Passover sacrifice and these people were just ripping them off. And Jesus was furious. That was a justice issue because the people who are most affected by that were the ones who least afford it and it was keeping them out of the kingdom. He talked at one point about the Pharisees. He said they're devouring widows' homes, the most vulnerable. So, so this, the kingdom to come should color our interactions and our engagement in the world that is now because the kingdom is here in us. But this is really important. Next point, really, really important. We are not at liberty to violate the principles of the kingdom of God in order to attempt to realize its goals. We are not at liberty to take up non-kingdom attitudes and responses and actions and behaviors, you know, as some shortcut to achieving the kingdom's goals on this earth right now. Because there is a king of the kingdom and his judgments are impartial and all must give an account to him and all will be judged according to his righteousness. So the only way to achieve the reorientation of God is to submit ourselves to full yield, yieldedness to the kingdom now with obedience. To be cautious in, in, in our efforts that we don't violate what is clearly taught in how we should treat one another and those around us. How we should live out in the world. If we, if we miss at that point, then everything beyond that is going to be in error and it's going to cause problems. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in his um, work to end segregation uh, engaged in what were called nonviolent protests and they were simply a defiance of the laws, the unjust laws of the time. People would just simply put their bodies in a place where they weren't supposed to be because they were the wrong color and receive the violence of, of those who tried to enact and, and, per, and perpetuate these unjust laws and they were willing to do that. Uh, but there's a really kind of little known part of this, which I only discovered fairly recently, um, and it's this, that all who, are, who, all who participated in these direct actions, nonviolent actions, were required to sign a pledge to certain disciplines of mind and body and spirit. They were required to sign this pledge. And here's what it said. So you're going to act. You believe that this is unjust, so you're going to go and do this action. But first... This is what you must pay attention to. Meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. Remember always that the nonviolent movement in Birmingham seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. Walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. Pray daily to be used by God in order that all men might be free. Sacrifice personal wishes in order that all men might be free. Observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. Seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. Refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, or heart. Strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health and follow the directions of the movement and of the captain on a demonstration. And, and as a consequence, uh, uh, Dr. King actually said that, that many people couldn't actually do this. They didn't feel that they were in a place to be able to do this. So they would do other errands and things like that. But for those who were going to be part of this, act for justice in the world in God's name, they were required to sign this pledge because Dr. King realized that there was needed to be something else happening us for us to be able to do this in line with the kingdom of God. It's not violent those principles for other principles. 
So pray and study, speak and act, but remember who you are. Pray and study and speak and act, but remember who you are and what kingdom it is that you are working for. And don't take up the weapons of the world to try to enact the kingdom of God. You know, I've personally felt great despair at the depths of my own lack of courage and discipline and imagination when it comes to being Christ's person fully in the world. Pursuing an unhindered relationship with Jesus as first priority and letting all my actions speak clearly of my faith in Jesus, his kingdom, and his lordship over my entire life. To love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love truly my neighbor as myself. And I become deeply aware that the church in America has a great deal of work to do if it is to become a clear reflection of who Jesus is, the head of the body There are defects and pathologies in the church world that are deeply ingrained and often unseen. I'd go so far as to say they are satanic. They are subtle. And sadly, just like the rest of the culture, we are in many ways at war with one another. At war with one another. Brothers and sisters, at war with one another. What we really need is to fully embrace the reorienting power of Christ now and every day. Take seriously its commands and its values above all other considerations. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in prison, Christmas time 1942, you know, his death was approaching, his stance against the Nazis and their regime, and his defense of the Jewish people, and his call to the church to stop being passive had led to his imprisonment and would lead to his death. And I don't want to make any clear connections between those times, but there will be many such times of upheaval and distress. But he wrote this in a a Christmas letter. And I want to explain briefly what he means from history from below. He had sort of been a scholar in an ivory tower studying theology. And actually, he started to realize, particularly after traveling to America and engaging with um, uh, actually a black church in New York and then some other uh, people at the the school that he was... uh, teaching at, um, that he saw Jesus with the poor and he saw that that to kind of understand Jesus' way, we need to sort of look at the world from below, not from above, not from the the ones who have conquered or were victorious, but actually from below because that's where Jesus was, was spending his time. So he said, to see the great events of world history from below, from the perspective of the outcasts, the suspects, the maltreated, the powerless, the oppressed and reviled. In short, from the perspective of suffering, the suffering, we have been silent witnesses of evil deeds. Experience has rendered us suspicious of human beings, and often we have failed to speak to them a true and open word. Unbearable conflicts have worn us down or even made us cynical. And then he asked this question about the church of his time. Are we still of any use? Are we still of any use? We might ask that today. And I felt a heaviness. What is the church for? Are, are we awakening to the call and the command and the power of Christ in light of his kingdom principles or in light of our own missions, our own wants, desires, our own hard fought for perspectives. Are we still of any use? But I also have a great deal of hope right now, a great deal of hope. 
I've had so many conversations with brothers and sisters who want to walk the sacrificial road of discipleship with Jesus, prepared, as Josh said last week, I think wisely, to be a presence of reconciliation that will often mean that both sides will hate you. Both sides will hate you. Pick a side. Oh, you're going a little closer to them. Then you're not on our side. Well, I'm on God's side. That's enough. Because Bonhoeffer continued, he said, what's, what's it going to take if we're to be any use? And in his letter, 1942, he said, if we are still of any use, it is because of a need, need not for geniuses, cynics, people who have contempt for others, or cunning tacticians, but for simple and uncomplicated and honest human beings. We need simple, uncomplicated, and honest human beings. Thomas Merton wrote something I find really timely, although written a long time ago. The church has an obligation not to join in the incantation of political slogans and in the concoction of pseudo-events, but to cut clear through the deviousness and ambiguity of both slogans and events by her simplicity and love. Perhaps the greatest gift of this time of confusion is that we might return to a simple gospel and words and actions that arise from there. I really hope so. It's what I I, have this sense of calling for myself. This morning, actually, in this devotional, Seeking God's Face, we talked about this a lot, and many of you are doing this every day, and I think it's a wonderful devotional. It's simply a chance to read scripture and pray. Not much more simple than that. But today, this is actually Friday, recording uh, the message today, and actually one of our elders texted me this morning, said, I don't know if you've read this yet, Grant, but this, today's message seems quite timely for us. And what it says is this, Loving Father, it's the prayer at the end, how quickly we can become discouraged about your church, especially when we measure it by attendance, political influence, budget, or programs. Free us from trying to size up your church by the pattern of this world. Instead, keep us in your way of simple service and humble love, energized in your mission always encouraged, knowing your hands guide and keep your people. Your hands guide and keep your people. One last thing I'd like to address today is the heaviness that many of you are probably feeling. I just want to say that in Scripture, the hope of reorientation, pretty much whenever it's mentioned by Paul or other New Testament writers, is always tied to the concept of current suffering. And that is instructive. Paul wrote to the Philippians, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. It tells us that the cross comes before the crown. Suffering comes before glory. Sacrifice comes before salvation. Death comes before life. 
You know, the ultimate rest that is offered to us in this great reorientation will be most keenly and sweetly felt that day when that comes. Most keenly and sweetly felt by those who walk the pilgrim road of self-sacrifice, humility, service, and compassion, the harder road. I think that shrinking from this burden, this burden of our calling, or, or finding it to be inordinately difficult tells us some things about the church. I think it tells us we've got some problems because the church was always designed to be a place where we would enter in with Christ to suffering, to sacrifice, but we always had our brothers and sisters tightly, intimately connected with us to whom we could turn. And I think the church in our culture is so separate, individualized that we've lost that connection. That's why many of us I think are feeling so heavy because we feel disconnected from one another and we're missing that. The question is, how will I, how will you rise to the need of our brothers and sisters? And I've been reaching out. I've been reaching out in my own places of disorientation. And let's continue to do that. I hope this has been helpful uh, today in understanding that so often we are, we are out of balance. In fact, every single day requires this recalibration, reorientation to the call of God because it does not come naturally to us. And I think typically it starts with repentance. And repentance is simply a recognition that I have drifted from the path and that I desire to be restored to that life with Jesus. And it's an everyday thing because we, as the hymn says, we are prone to wander. And there are many, many voices calling us away to simpler, easier paths, even in the accomplishment of the good things that we want to see. But there's one voice that we want to listen to. There's one kingdom we want to live according to. So as a prayer at the end, I'm going to lead us in Psalm 51. And if you're in a small group this week, um, we're going to consider this some more. I would encourage us in the future, if you've not been part of a small group, to sign up to one because this is where we kind of do the communal work of discussing these things and sharing our own perspectives and growing as a result. Um, but let's together, uh, you can either just listen or read along with Psalm 51. This is the prayer of this seeker of the kingdom. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. 
Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. I pray that this has been stirring things in us. God is always speaking. God is always calling. God is always inviting. And, and if you've been watching and listening to this series and, and you feel that you don't know this God of whom we're talking about, then I'd simply just say, ask him. If you're feeling the weight of your own sin and, and your complicity and, and, and the stuff that's happening around, then just offer that. And you, you see, receive forgiveness. Christ has conquered. He has finished and his forgiveness is free and available to us that we don't need to live in condemnation anymore, but in life and in energy and in joy and in freedom. But never at the expense of others. It's always done in community with one another. I'd encourage you to reach out to someone this week, especially as someone you think might be actually on the opposite side of the fence to you, and pray together. Pray together that God would make himself known in your relationship and known through your relationship, that the reconciliation that happens in your lives might be something that can grow in this world and especially in the church. Uh, and I pray that you have a week of encounter with God for he is the only one that can rescue us and make us beneficial people in our communities. Uh, God bless you.